Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Erin Presley is the herb, woodland, and pond garden horticulturalist at Ulbrick Botanical Gardens, a 16-acre free public garden founded in 1952 on the shores of Lake Winona in Madison, Wisconsin. In her position since 2014, Erin has become as much a part of the landscape as the plants and animals of the garden she loves. She has been particularly instrumental in bringing to life with the help of other plants, people, including the director of horticulture, Jeff Epping, gardens of culture, representing the plant history, but also the relationship of a diversity of Madisonians to their plants. Erin, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you today, Jennifer. So I would love to have you introduce yourself a little more personally to listeners, Erin. How do you introduce yourself uh, in terms of a professional title and maybe include in that a, a little more personal statement on the role that plants and gardens play in your life? Well, my name is Erin Presley, and I am very happy to be a part of the horticulture staff here at Ulbrick Botanical Gardens in Madison. We are a small garden with a big heart. Uh, we're operated under the umbrella of the City of Madison Parks Division, and I personally am in charge of the herb garden, our woodland garden, which is a beautiful um, native plant garden populated by oaks and birches and beautiful spring ephemerals. We have other lovely spaces here at Ulbrick as well, but those two are the really nearest and dearest to my heart. And um, it's really excellent working in an herb garden because I feel like herbs are really a gateway to other people becoming excited and entranced by this wonderful plant world that we inhabit. So the herb garden is really just uh, my baby and like I reach my fullest expression of what I would like people to learn about plants there and also use that as a really great avenue to get people who don't even know that they are big plant fans yet to get into this wonderful world of gardening. So I like to think of myself overall as kind of like a gardening cheerleader and <laughs> show people, every you know, everybody out there, there's um, some plant that will be able to grab you and some plant that hopefully everybody will be able to find something that they'll be able to grow that touches them, that makes them know that they are a born gardener too. And so um, a big role of what we do here at Ulbrick, and I think a big part of what motivates a lot of other gardeners is just helping other people find that connection with just one thing that sparks interest in gardening for them. I love that. And we're going to unpack all of that as we keep going in this conversation. But before we go there, take us back a little bit in your life. I would love to hear more about where you were born and raised and some of your earliest influences, the, the, the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a person for whom you can, you can hear in your voice that when you say you're a garden and plant cheerleader, you are not joking. Um, yeah, I have lived in Wisconsin for my whole life, and Wisconsin is such an excellent place to grow up and um, 
we're really in a privileged place to be able to live here because I feel like it's a very underappreciated state by a lot of people. Um, we have everything that people would go travel thousands of miles around the U.S. to see, but maybe it's just a little bit smaller here in Wisconsin and you might have to lo look a little harder to find it. So we have expansive forests, beautiful prairies, we have sand dunes, we have waterfalls, we have oceans of fresh water. So I have always felt myself very privileged to live in Wisconsin for as long as I have. Um, I'm 38. And I was very fortunate to grow up. And I think a lot of people who work in horticulture have somewhat similar origin stories a lot of times as having parents who um, fostered a really good appreciation of the outdoors from an early age. So I grew up in central Wisconsin. And my parents had what you would call maybe a farmette. So it was like all of the most fun parts of living in a rural area without having to actually be a farmer or make your living off of the <laughs> land. But uh, so we um, had really large vegetable gardens and participated in 4-H, taking animals to the fair and flower projects and doing landscape projects out in the yard and, um, you know, working on canning and food preserving and really mm -hmm. getting our hands dirty all the time, which um, in retrospect, I really realized that it is a place of privilege to grow up that yeah. way. At the time, you know, that's kind of what everybody in our um, neck of the woods was doing. But looking back, I just am so grateful for being brought up that way. And then my father actually had his background in ecology. So we also had a pretty large area of um, northern temperate forest that was on the property where my parents still live. And so we would spend a lot of time, you know, taking walks out in the woods or even just walking up and down the driveway. And I remember always um, getting plant quizzes from my dad to try to identify what certain trees oh, that's were. Great. But, yeah, but then I would have to have him spell out like three to five letters of, you know, the tree was a maple and I wouldn't really get what it was until he had already spelled like, well, M, A, P. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, maple. Yes, I know that that's one. That's great. So really a lot of, a lot of good memories, really great memories from an early age growing up outside. It's interesting though, because when I entered college, it never really occurred to me to go into the green industry. And I think that's kind of one thing that um, as public gardens, um, we really are focusing on going forward is that there are so many people who are excellent candidates to be involved in horticulture and a green industry from career career early on. But a lot of people, when they're making those sort of decisions early on in life, don't even really realize that a career in horticulture or public gardens is such a fulfilling way to make a living. Um, so I started college as a um, German major, actually, and then I had one horticulture class, and I was just completely hooked after that. Wow, so, that's great. So you took this one class and, and you were hooked. Tell us about your path from there. Yeah, so I um, worked in the campus greenhouses. I had some other more kind of agriculturally related horticulture jobs when I was in college. And then when I went home for the summers, I worked for a landscaping company doing maintenance. And um, I think garden maintenance, especially when it is just from the space of what you would think of as kind of a typical landscaping company is it's a very um, 
It's such a great opportunity to really honor the landscapes that you're visiting and have opportunities to identify what's there and what is um, revivable and worth, charity, uh, worth cherishing. And then um, practice making also editing decisions because obviously when you go into a new space and if it's somebody who feels like they need a lot of help working in their yard in the first place, typically you're addressing some pretty um, serious problems sometimes and, you know, lots of weeds and overgrown plants, but it's really fantastic to be able to um, go into a new space and then find what's really worth preserving there and then nurture it back to health. So um, I really loved my first landscaping jobs and landscaping ex experiences and also the people that I was always happy to work with because I think a lot of people who work in horticulture, work in gardening, they're not the type of people that maybe necessarily are motivated by money or prestige, but they're the type of people that just um, really get a rise and a kick and a motivation and find find joy in just being outside every day. So you already have a built-in kind of group of really positive people around you a lot of times. And it's a very, um, very lucky place if you can land in a good, um, good spot working in the green yeah. industry or working outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how did you then make your way to Oldbrook and your role there, Erin? Once I was actually through with college, I at that point was dealing with a few personal issues in my life. So I kind of felt like going on to pursue additional schooling wasn't really for me. And I really wanted to just get out there and get my hands dirty. So I had been um, very lucky to be an intern here at Ulbrich during my last year of college. And then I felt like I had the skills and was really ready to get out and just go out into the working world. So I worked for eight years for a just a private landscaping company, again, doing maintenance. And that was really... Um, when I first started to realize this kind of interesting combination of working in the gardening world and um, experiencing both a lot of like humility and empowerment mm. at the same time, especially working in the private industry, you're dealing with all these conflicting things, schedules, unhappy customers the work is really hard yeah <laughs> so hard but the but god it's the i mean i think we say the word maintenance you know and this is a very real conversation in our horticultural world right now is that empowerment and humility as two sides of the same coin because you cannot learn about plants really effectively in gardens if you don't understand how to maintain them well. You learn how they grow. You learn how they adapt. You learn when they won't grow or why they won't grow through working with them in maintenance. And yet we say that word maintenance and it has this terrible connotation of a low status, low paid position. And yet it is the most empowering position if you're going to be an effective horticulturalist. And I think that is one of the mandates of our horticultural world right now as gardeners, as garden owners, is to elevate and to raise up the, the importance and the visibility of that maintenance role. And especially looking at the way that gardening trends are going now as far as entering into um, plant communities and gardening regimes that are meant to establish their own balance and hopefully not need as much intervention from us going forward. I feel like that's a really encouraging trend. Yes. But even when you are, you know, when we are out 
<laughs> visiting yards. It was really great to just see that just with persistence and by being there every week and just making very small incremental steps sometimes, you could take just the most horribly weed-ridden, overgrown, just really, you know, difficult, difficult gardens to work with. And just by putting in the time, um, eventually give people something that was really rewarding for them to live with where they could really see a lot of beauty that they hadn't appreciated before. So that is, I mean, that's hugely empowering right there. And that wasn't even working in spaces that I would have considered, you know, my own really to tend. This is all just working for for other people in their yards, basically. And again, one thing that I learned a lot about there that I try to bring into my current position is working at a public garden now, we're surrounded by people all the time who are horticulture professionals. They're coming with an intent to um, enjoy and love this garden where I work now. Um, so you kind of forget in my current role sometimes that that's not how everybody feels about plants. Right. There's a lot of people out there who look out in their yards and they just think, oh, this is dying and I see weeds over here and I don't know what to do with this. And it can be a huge point of stress for some people. So mm. um it's really important that we as gardeners make accessible spaces and I think really also own up to our mistakes because yeah. it's um, especially in the age of Instagram and social media. It's really great to always put out there, you know, show everybody your victories, but all gardeners know that there's a lot of trial and error and we have a lot of things <laughs> that don't always go so well too. So I think, um, you know, owning up to that and just admitting where we've, had some, you know, some choices that we've made that didn't always work out is a huge part of what we need to be doing in our communications too. So yeah. um, after then working at that landscaping job for so long, and again, just over eight years, I felt like I was finally understanding a lot of the patterns that I was seeing in a lot of landscapes or, you know, just really seeing, um, things that you had planted take hold, it takes a really long time. And um, so I just, I'm so grateful for that experience. I feel like I really earned my gardening chops. And then when I was able to move back into the um, public horticulture world here at Ulbrich, I had an extremely firm foundation in just on the ground, daily gardening skills and what you can expect plants to do, wide diversity of you know, knowledge of plant material and really personal relationships with a lot of these plants. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with Erin Presley, herb, woodland, and pond garden horticulturalist at Old Brick Botanical Gardens, a 16-acre free public garden founded in 1952 on the shores of Lake Winona in Madison, Wisconsin. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, funding initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. 
join the Conservancy and me for the inaugural Garden Futures Summit on Friday, September 29th and Saturday, September 30th at the New York Botanical Garden. The summit will feature keynote speaker Lady Isabella Tree, author of The Book of Wilding, a practical guide to rewilding big and small. The two-day summit at the New York Botanical Garden includes more than a dozen other influential speakers from across the gardening world whose ideas are shaping the future of gardening. Join in the conversation, join in the debates, join us for the summit. For more information and to register, visit gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. Hey, it's Jennifer. So, humility and empowerment all at the same time. I just had to smile when Erin shared this experience for her in the garden. Raise your hand out there. Anybody else? Humility and empowerment at the same time? (laughs) Erin Presley, herb, woodland, and pond garden horticulturalist at Old Brick Botanical Gardens in Madison, Wisconsin, is with us this week. And as we come back, Erin describes a little more about the unique characteristics of Madison and the history of the Old Brick Botanical Gardens. The southern third of Wisconsin, um, centrally located kind of in the, the middle of the southern third of the state. Historically, this was all prairie land around here and mm-hmm. we're very um, fortunate in Madison um, is the site of some of the first explorations of prairie restoration mm-hmm. by um, Aldo Leopold specifically mm-hmm. at like the UW Arboretum with the Curtis Prairie and Green Prairie. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright obviously was very uh, a very dominant figure in this part of Wisconsin as well. So we really come from a backbone of um, this very prairie style kind of aesthetic here at the garden. Mm-hmm. And then Madison itself is really special. Historically, this is the territory of the Ho-Chunk people, and the Ho-Chunk name for the area surrounding Madison is De Jope, or Four Lakes. And so actually, the downtown of Madison is located on an isthmus, and there are is a system of interconnected lakes that um, kind of skirts around the whole city. And so we're just extremely fortunate we have um, beautiful lakeshore and lots of opportunities for outdoor recreation focused on the water, um, beautiful natural areas between those associated with the University of Wisconsin campus, um, you know, lovely public parks that are located on the lake. And then Ulbrich itself is situated on the shore of one of these lakes is just right across the street. It's um. Lake Monona, and kind of bringing that historical perspective in, you can really tell that people were sort of magnetized by this location here in Madison and the fertility of this lowland area around the system of lakes. And even just a few blocks away from the garden is an array of effigy mounds from people that actually predated the Ho-Chunk. So you can really tell that there's this energy here and there's a big reason that people wanted to settle here. And then we also have, you know, the history of the prairies. We have these amazing conservationists that came from Wisconsin, 
between, again, like I said, Aldo Leopold, um, John Muir. We have really pioneering plants people today, mm -hmm. like Roy Diblick, mm -hmm. um, who some of your listeners may know. And so um, it's really an epicenter of a lot of exciting things that um, are even just coming out of our, our are kind of like steeped in the history of of the area here yeah and then um yeah so it's really just a privileged place to be able to work and even just live madison is always rated as one of the most livable cities in the united states um when people are forecasting what will be um locations to live that will remain a little bit more tolerable in the face of climate change madison is usually right up there too and then um, if you go even just a little bit north of us, nearer to where um, I grew up in central Wisconsin, that is where the southern floristic province. So when you're looking at the southern broadleaf forests and the prairies, that's where they start to fade into the um, northern mixed forest and mm -hmm. more of a a boreal type plant yeah. community. Yeah. So as you go just a little bit north, there's some really interesting dynamic there. And especially looking forward as um, we're looking at just changes in weather and climate, it's a really interesting place to be able to um, study what we might be seeing and even just witness the changes that are happening. So, I mean, Wisconsin, it really is where it's at. So, <laughs> And Madison well, is just a beautiful place to live. It's a nice college town and a lot of good food and right. all that good stuff. But I want to come back to this beautiful kind of scene you set of the intersection of big bioregions that Madison and the state kind of find themselves in. And this history of conservation, this being one of our little epicenters of horticultural innovation and enthusiasm, maybe, uh, that we see in our world. And, you know, I want to go back to your reference to Aldo Leopold and um, Roy Diblick, different generations, different ideas, but same kind of idea, because the, the prairie-style conservation and restoration movement, which really took hold in the 70s, uh, you know, and earlier there from where you are, it really has informed in many ways the history of Ulbrich. Can you give us a little bit of the history of Ulbrich and then we'll move into some of the specific projects you've been working on there that um, have really lit you up, Erin? Uh, certainly. So um, the history of this garden is that uh, in the early 1900s, Michael B. Ulbrich, who was a very prominent um, attorney and philanthropist and actually a skilled naturalist himself, he was one of his particular um, loves was trilliums and uh, native woodland flowers. He was also a big orchid geek. So he sort of um, saw how a lot of the lakeshore property around Madison was being bought up and developed and was really um, very quickly um, passing out of the reach and the access of just what he sort of envisioned as the common working person. Mm. And so he took it upon himself and actually used his own uh, money to buy about um, 300 feet of the Lake Monona shoreline and the property behind it with the intention that it become a public park and then eventually a garden that was just meant to provide access for sort of the the everyday person who couldn't afford to live on the lake themselves. And so um, 
he was successful in all of this. And so he bought the property. Um, eventually, it passed into um, the realm of the Parks Department. And then starting in about the 50s was when it really took off as more of a public garden versus just a grassy park, you know, developed slowly over time. And then really within the past 25 to 30 years, have we really started to come into our own as a, a full-fledged and very um, beautiful and respected botanical garden. And a lot of that has to do also with good leadership at all levels, but the influence of our current horticulture director, Jeff Epping. He really has had a vision for this space to make it just a really gem of the park system and one of the premier public gardens, I really think, in the United States, which is really wonderful because we are still a free admission public garden. Oh, and that's great. The caliber of the gardening here is just incredible, given the fact that um, you don't have to pay to get in. And the other thing I really like about Ulbrich is the property here is only 16 acres, which on the scale of a public garden is, you know, sort of middle of the road. But um, since it is free and it is not a super large, I feel like it kind of breaks down some of the barriers that people might feel towards visiting public gardens. Mm, yeah. So you, you know, you don't feel like you have to come here and pay $20 and then spend four hours here because you had just like <laughs> dropped all this coin on admission. It's a really casual interface for people to come in and just bring a book and walk around for an hour. Um, we have a lot of people who just do like power walking or just will come out and visit one little spot while they're here and just spend 20 minutes. And I think, you know, the flip side of that is sort of a mandate for us since we are already um, have a low barrier to access or we we would like people to know that the barrier to access here is very low. We really strive to get new people to come here all the time. Um, and it's important for us to understand if people are not visiting us, why is that? You know, are we not reaching out to the right people in the right places? Is it something that is a perception about public gardens in general? Because we really consider ourselves to be just a huge public resource. So we're constantly striving to find um, ways to reach new audiences and get them engaged in what's going on here and gardening in general. I love this, and it really ties right into my next question, which is uh, more specifics about what you are doing there um, and the programming, because I think that your work in the herb garden, one of the older specific spaces there at the Old Brick Botanical Garden, um, along with the Rose Garden, I think, and maybe um, a sunken garden were some of the earliest, like detailed garden plans in the larger garden. and But now you have this beautiful suite of different cultural gardens. And I think those are very interesting in terms of how they've been developed and how they mirror the people of Madison and the general region and invite them to be part of this public space. 
Yes. And one of my favorite, you know, what really makes me tick about working in the herb garden is that um, just people in general almost always can find something that is, um, you know, edible or fragrant or, you know, all of these different ways that people interact with plants. No matter who you are or where you're, what your background is like or what type of day you're having, um, I really hope that people can come into the herb garden and see at least one plant that is familiar to them yeah, yeah. or that speaks to them. Yeah, or just makes them feel like they're at home, which is easy because a lot of herbs are so universal mm. um, between many different cultures. So I really hope that people can come in the herb garden and really feel like, oh, yes, like this is a place that speaks to me that I'm meant to be here. And I see something that makes me feel like I'm a part of the conversation. So the herb garden just is... Um, already broken up all into all these fun little spaces where we have plants for dyes and we have medicinal plants and we have um, a butterfly bed and we are experimenting more and more with um, like permaculture type plantings or more, um, you know, longer scale edible plants versus just um, veggies and annual plants. So there's already just a huge diversity of things that are happening in the herb garden. But specifically, I started to kind of think about, well, how can we use the herb garden as a vehicle for people to um, relate to other cultures that are here in Madison that maybe they don't have an avenue to really um, learn a lot about themselves? And then also, how can we bring more people into the door at Ulbrich by um, kind of creating these specialty gardens that make people feel like their traditions are really being honored and explored and presented for everybody to see mm -hmm. in a really positive light. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, through various working in a public garden, we have all sorts of different community connections and partnerships. And um, I originally had started making some friends with some um ladies who have actually an Ayurvedic spa. So um, we got really keyed up about this idea of basically having kind of a garden takeover in the herb garden for a year where we would grow a lot of plants that were significant in Ayurveda and just Indian culture in general. So for us in Ulbrick and for myself personally, it's a great learning experience. It's a way to present and um, interpret plants that people might not be very familiar with, especially with the um, Ayurvedic plants specifically. So many of those fun tropical plants, we grew ginger and turmeric and bananas and um, plants with a lot of flair. So just inherently, it has some fun and drama sort of built into even the aesthetic of the garden. And then um, for the community partners I was working with, they were just so happy because a lot of people, um, you know, no matter what your cultural background is, not everybody is has the time and the space and the expertise to grow like a full range of Ayurvedic herbs and vegetables themselves. Right. <laughs> right. But it helps to have somebody whose job is to be doing gardening and tending to this stuff all the time and know where to find plants and um, take care of them. So for them, it was just really thrilling to see all of these plants that maybe they had only encountered when they were traveling or had only seen in a more processed form, you know, when they were already in a preparation or were just coming from the grocery store, but really to see those plants alive and thriving and get to develop their own personal relationship 
with all of these Ayurvedic plants as well. So that was kind of our first experience. And um, it was really interesting because at that time I was um, speaking with one of our other co-workers here at um, Ulbrich, a young woman by the name of Rita Peters, oh, who yeah. is actually of yeah, Ho-Chunk and Menominee descent. And she said, oh, well, I saw in the newsletter that you're growing an Indian garden out in the herb garden. And she, being native herself, went out there expecting to see, you know, the three sisters or um, plants that she would identify as being a part of her native culture. And then when she realized that it was actually plants from India and Ayurveda, she was like, oh, that's like, that's what you meant by Indian. But then that really sparked this conversation of, you know, maybe this is going to be a really great gardening project between Rita and I, because she already had just a love of plants and a real knack for interpretation. Yeah. And so um, Rita and I started working on a gardening project together, which really became just an amazing multi-year journey. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with Erin Presley, herb, woodland, and pond garden horticulturalist at Ulbrich Botanical Gardens in Madison, Wisconsin. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. Happy end of July and heading into August. And speaking of, can you relate to this statement by Aaron? Does maintenance sound familiar to any of you other late July gardeners out there? Maintenance, anyone? (laughs) Enjoy the end of July, gardeners. It's hard work. It's hot. It's sticky. It's buggy. But oh my gosh, is it worth it. We're speaking this week with Erin Presley, gardener at the Ulbrick Botanical Gardens in Madison, Wisconsin, since 2014. An herbal enthusiast, Erin sees the herbs we all use in food and medicine as one of our great horticultural common grounds, accessible no matter your cultural background. As we come back, she shares much more about some of her efforts in collaboration with others to introduce cultural display gardens of relevance to the diversity of Madisonians, including an Ayurvedic garden, a Thai garden, a Hmong garden in development, and an indigenous garden co-created with plantswoman Rita Peters of Ho-Chunk descent. Rita and I hatched this plot that we were going to be creating an indigenous garden that didn't necessarily focus on traditions or plants specific to any particular tribal group here in Wisconsin, but was more sort of meant to just honor and interpret and create some community connections based on the traditions of a lot of Native groups that were just living in the Midwest at one time or another. But what was really important to us was to find ways to actually get people to come in and check out the garden and make a connection with some of the people that these plants were important to. We created a pretty simple plant list that featured, um, you know, corn, squash, and beans. The corn, we were really fortunate to um, access through um, Rita's role as a member 
member of the Ho-Chunk tribe and actually the Department of Natural Resources for the Ho-Chunk has cornfields that they cultivate themselves. And then the tribal members are able to get a portion of that corn to be able to grow their own gardens. So those seeds mm. especially were really, um, you know, important to us. And um, beyond that, we grew um, some gourds. We had common milkweed, actually, Asclepias syriaca, um, which is a plant too that you know, many of us encounter it on the roadside on almost a daily basis and don't know like the deep history and all of the um, beautiful ways to use this plant. So the Ho-Chunk mm. people specifically will harvest the unopened flower buds of the common milkweed. And you get them um, when they're about the size of uh, maybe a ping pong ball or so, a little bit smaller than that sometimes. And before they turn pink and open up at all, and a really mm -hmm. treasured Ho-Chunk food is milkweed soup. So you use the little green flower buds and then you cook them up in a brothy soup with just some other real basic vegetables and then some tiny dumplings. So we thought that would be a really fun thing to feature as a part of our garden project was um, to invite mm. people to come check out the garden and have a little bit of milkweed soup. And then... Um, Another plant that we were really um, fortunate to already have growing here at Ulrich was a large patch of sweetgrass in our um, rain garden. So the sweetgrass in Ho-Chunk is Shemanaske. And um, it's one of those plants that can be used in a um, very sacred and ceremonial fashion in indigenous practices. But um, based on a lot of research we did with Ho-Chunk elders and other people who were even, you know, vendors, indigenous vendors of sweetgrass, they sort of approved it being um, able to be used for just, it's still appropriate for people who are not indigenous to use as long as they approach it with the right mindset and the right um, spirit in their heart. So we um, also set up a day where we harvested sweetgrass from our own rain garden here. And then we invited community members in to learn a little bit about um, the traditions behind growing it, appropriate harvest practices, and then guided them in making their own sweetgrass braids. So we had some fun activities that we planned to um, really get the community in and excited about this project and create some opportunities mm -hmm. for just a lot of cross-cultural connection here in the garden. Well, and you just told us the traditional name of sweetgrass, and that kind of ties into this lovely like language project that was a, a an outgrowth of this project you and Rita did in at Olbrick and how it has progressed. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yes, like many indigenous languages and just cultural practices in general, after just hundreds of years of cultural suppression and violence and genocide, there's a lot of yeah. cultural elements that are just intensively endangered. And so um, here in Wisconsin, there are only about 200 speakers left who are fluent in the Ho-Chunk language. And only about 50 of them are actually the older people who grew up speaking Ho-Chunk. And so um, as a tribal group, the um, the tribe is 
just undergoing massive efforts to create language apprenticeships and training programs to ensure that their language stays alive and thriving and growing. And so one of the things that we thought would be neat was to feature the Ho-Chunk language is as a part of our gardening project. So we created um, multilingual signs that had both the English and the Ho-Chunk names for the plants in the garden. And then Rita herself recorded a spoken word video that had photographs of the plants in the garden and then um, a pronunciation of their English and their Ho-Chunk names, which really brought the project to life because I know every time I was able to be fortunate enough to listen to Rita speak the Ho-Chunk language, it just is really transportational. And so to be able to even just in a very small way um, allow other people to hear a few words of Ho-Chunk here and there. I think it was um, really powerful and the language itself is really beautiful. So um, we presented that as a part of our project and it's really amazing, you know, in this day and age of digital technology, we were able to get it up on YouTube and then have a QR code out in the garden so people could just scan with their phones and then just be immediately taken to this video where they were, you know, seeing the plants in front of them in real life and then hearing these just like really mellifluous words um, in the Ho-Chunk language that accompanied them. Well, we'll clearly have to get Rita on a cultivating place at another time to speak more about this. And we will definitely include a link uh, to her recording of these language names. But I just, I love this idea of the garden mirroring the people around it uh, as it has grown and evolved because there's a Thai garden there. And I think maybe did you mention that you have a Hmong garden in development? Yeah. So one thing that we learned through the Indigenous Garden is that people really got behind this garden and were just so interested yeah. to hear about the programs and the culture. And we had just incredible turnouts for our um, our community activities that we did. Again, being a free garden, it was really easy to invite people in for the milkweed soup tasting or the sweetgrass braiding um, because they didn't, you know, could kind of just come on a whim. We didn't have registration or anything. So the most recent time we served um, milkweed soup out in the garden, we had over 300 people come in over the course of the day, which is a lot of soup. It takes that's, a lot, you know. That's awesome. Some, that's a lot of yeah, soup. Yeah. Um, and again, just to see, you know, that's really hard work from a cultural perspective. So um, for me, it was, you know, on these days, I would just be running around and finding spoons and, you know, making sure people had kind of what they needed. But to hear Rita just spend the whole day, you know, interpreting her culture and answer questions and um, was really just uh, you know, amazing experience, even just to to watch her and hear the strength um, behind her culture and have the ability to express that. And also being able to work with young people in this setting. Rita is, I think now she's 25. And so sort of growing out of that experience in the past year or so, we had actually an intern here at Ulbrick who is Hmong and her name is Sabrina Her. And the Hmong are a um, cultural group that um, historically they migrated, you know, in, in 
far, <laughs> a long, long time ago, um, migrated from China to other parts of Southeast Asia. And then um, many of them actually moved to the United States and specifically to Wisconsin as um, refugees after the Vietnam War. And so, um, they have very strong agricultural traditions, though, a lot of Hmong people, and we're super privileged in Wisconsin. If you go to any farmer's market, uh, a good portion of the stands frequently have um, are tended by people who are Hmong who grow amazing, amazing vegetables. So Sabrina is uh, a young woman who was a intern here with us, and um, she actually is an English major. So she didn't come from a horticulture background per se, but she got really captured by this idea of kind of connecting to her um, cultural gardening knowledge and history. And um, we started talking about the idea of doing a gardening project together in the upcoming years. And so she just dove right in and started making connections in the community, visiting other Hmong gardeners, we met a few times already over the winter and every time she would show up at Ulbrook, she would say, oh, somebody gave me these other seeds or, you know, I heard this really mm. neat story. So I think we have another really neat um, gardening project in, you know, coming down the pipes there. And then just Ulbrook in general as a permanent feature of our gardens is um, we actually are the site of one of the only Thai salas. So it's kind of like a, a pavilion, I guess. Um, it's an open mm. air structure that is very ornately decorated, covered in gold leaf. Um, it's not a religious structure. It's more of just a shelter that is meant, I guess in Thailand, I've never been to Thailand, but it would just be kind of an open air pavilion that's meant for daily shelter for people when they're out, you know, just traveling on the road. But we have the only Thai garden that is in the continental United States and the only one outside of Thailand that actually has a garden around it. So it was actually a gift of the Thai Alumni Association from the University of Wisconsin here and then um, thought that Ulrich would be a beautiful site for this really just magnificently decorated pavilion. And we have a lot of other interesting Thai artwork that is associated with the pavilion. And then um, the whole area around the pavilion is gardened in an absolutely outstandingly done tropical style. So people think that just because you live in the Midwest, you can't have that little bit of tropical flair in your garden. Um, right. But we use a lot of tropical plants that we overwinter ourselves. And then we also um, use a lot of temperate plants that have um, you know, foliage characteristics or really bold flowers that mimic a tropical style while being hardy to our climate. Which is beautiful. And of course, we'll come back to to the prairie that you just mentioned and um you're doing a lot of work with just interesting native perennials as well as honoring this larger cultural population around you can you talk a little bit about that and and your your work with those plants one of the things that is really interesting as more and more research and um, planting schemes are designed around the idea of plant communities and how different mm. types of plants work together in unison to support each other and 
interact in all of these really interesting ways and support invertebrate communities is that one of the most successful models for a plant community that is resilient, is able to withstand um, weed pressure, is able to have um, sustain itself over time is a great model for this type of plant community is actually um, the prairies, so our native prairies. And so if you look at the work of, you know, really prominent figures in Europe, they way back in the day, you know, Pete Udolph was modeling, adopting native prairie plants from the Midwest and using them in Europe um, quite a bit before I think that style really caught on here. So we're really lucky in Wisconsin that we have some of the, you know, remnant prairies and models for these sorts of systems are just sort of inherent in our cultural knowledge and what we're seeing when we just go out and take a nature walk, basically. Um, so we already have a really good ecological background and sort of um, ingrained knowledge and um, can see those models around us all the time. So one of the things that we are known for here at Ulbrich and this has really been um, some pioneering work by our horticulture director, Jeff Epping, is this concept of the gravel gardens. And so mm. um, don't don't think about like an alpine garden where you see lots of gravel and then you have, you know, conifers and little succulent plants. But the gravel gardens actually are um, garden systems that primarily use a lot of native prairie plants, um, plants that have very deep root runs, are drought mm -hmm. tolerant, um, are able to be grown at a high planting density. And then what you plant them into is actually a substrate of, you know, your normal garden soil at the very bottom layer, but you excavate down about six to eight inches and you install a thick layer of a free draining gravel. And so, and then when you're planting, you kind of scoot that gravel aside and then you have your plug or your small perennial plant and you stick it in the gravel so that it just is kissing that soil layer below, pull the mm. gravel back over the top. And then the plants are planted at um, extremely high density so that once mm -hmm. they're established, they create a continuous cover over the surface of the gravel, which excludes a lot of agricultural weeds that need sunlight um, to mm. germinate. And then um, the high planting density also means that you have plants that are interacting at all layers of the soil profile below. So you're really uh, making the best use of your resources, both above ground and below ground as well. And then they're gardened usually with just a very free flowing mix of drought tolerant grasses, um, a lot of different flowers they because the um, gravel warms up earlier in the season than a regular soil substrate they kind of take off and get growing a little bit earlier mm. than a lot of our other garden perennials so it's been an amazingly um, successful model for us here at Ulbrich and is catching on in a lot of other um, climates and environments as well. In your role, Erin, um, and this first eight years there, eight years plus that you have been at Ulbrich and some of these exciting things you've been working on, what are your greatest hopes for this work as we move forward as gardeners in our world? 
Well, I think it's really interesting that, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about these design plant communities and really digging deep into how different plants support each other and work together to become something that's, you know, bigger than bigger than the sum of its parts, I guess. And I, I, I really hope that as a public gardening world or just as gardeners in general, we find ways to to um, take that same mindset of how our gardens and the plants in them are working together and start looking a little bit more at how our gardens are um, interplaying with the human communities around us. And, you know, there's uh, so many exciting developments in green infrastructure and biophilic design and how can how can all of our gardens create um, become a dynamic part of this like larger web around us. So if you look at the work of, you know, Doug Talamy and it's really having, creating more of like a systems mindset about how our gardens are linking to each other and um, creating something that's bigger than what any one of us is contributing. And I think again, a big part of that is just encouraging new gardeners and especially young people to really know that, you know, somewhere deep down in all of us, there's we're all a born gardener. And it's a very mm -hmm. um, you know, empowering, it's a very empowering mindset. And um the other thing that always really strikes me is a lot of times if you'll go to um gatherings of gardeners or industry events, just this invincible optimism in gardeners mm, so you will actually so true. Hear, yes oh i have actually you know you'll hear people say gardeners will save the world and yes. i i just often think if you know how can we make this enthusiasm kind of contagious and i would love to go to you know a convention of electricians or sanitation workers <laughs> and then um, you know, hear them saying, oh, sanitation will save the world or like, yeah. you know, the grid is going to save the world. And I just think um, we're really as gardeners, we're in such a privileged place to share that enthusiasm. And um, hopefully the trickle down will just be felt in, um, you know, other similar or or even not related fields around us. So, um it's just a very it's a, it's just a very empowering um and privileged spot to be in and how do we just really convey that energy and the urgency of what we feel and what we're doing in other aspects of our life yeah i think you just did it so invincible optimism it is thank you so much for being a guest on the program and the sharing the phenomenal work uh, being grown out there at the the Old Brick Botanical Garden and just across Madison. Um, really a pleasure to speak with you today, Erin. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Erin Presley is the herb, woodland, and pond garden horticulturalist at Olbrook Botanical Gardens, a 16-acre free public garden founded in 1952 on the shores of Lake Winona in Madison, Wisconsin. In her position since 2014, Erin has become as much a part of the landscape as the plants and animals of the garden she loves. 
For the fullness of my conversation with Aaron, make sure to download this week's podcast version of the program, which you can always find over at cultivatingplace.com by following the links under the podcast tab to this week's show notes. Or you can always find Cultivating Place wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, NPR One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Join us again next week when we visit one of the largest native plant trial and test gardens in the country in conversation with Sam Holdley, Manager of Horticultural Research at the Mount Cuba Center in Hocassin, Delaware. They are gardening on a higher level. That's next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and through support from the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications from Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.